Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode, we welcome Adam Cole, broadcaster for the Bowie Bay Sox, to recap the Bay Sox season. We're going to discuss a lot of the top prospects that went through the Bay Sox this season, from Gunnar Henderson to Kobe Mayo. And get into the team's uh, performance as well. But first, I'm going to turn it to Bob to uh, promote an upcoming event we have. Yeah, we're only a little over a week away from our first live show ever at Full Tilt Tilt Brewing at uh, 5604 York Road. So if you're free Wednesday evening, uh, 4 o'clock for the Orioles game, we'll be there to watch that live. And then we'll do a show around 8 afterwards. We'd love to see anyone that can make it there. So, yeah, check it out. I like that it's at a brewery. (laughs) <laughs> that's, part, that's part for the course right Absolutely. that's fantastic that's exciting and i'm driving three hours to this thing so people better show up <laughs> yeah well worth it that's right do it do it for next show up to full tilt next wednesday and i'll now introduce our guest he uh is a broadcaster for the Bowie bay Sox. he's been with Bowie since 2014 and prior to joining the bay Sox, was with the frederick keys so he is adam pole adam how are you Great, Zach, and, and I'm excited to be here. Uh, obviously, I was very fortunate to continue. It's kind of a new role for me this year. I'm almost like broadcaster emeritus. When I was growing up listening to the Orioles and John Miller became the voice of the Orioles, Chuck Thompson would come on on Sundays and do a few innings. So I kind of feel like I'm that. Matt Sabatis, the new voice of the Bay Sox, and I'm lucky enough to kind of come in. And I think I did about 40, 45 games this year, so it, it was a lot of fun. It's good as always to hear you on the air, and to an extent, it felt like the Bay Sox kind of had multiple seasons in one from uh, <laughs> yes. the high expectations in the beginning, then a first-half slump, and then a second-half surge that almost got them into the playoffs. What was it like to uh, follow this team and see them play firsthand? Well, you know, in the minor leagues, your team's always changing, and you're either getting better or you're getting worse. Uh, and it, there were times where you'd look at the base socks this year and be like, oh, man, you know, that you, this is going to be tough. And then there were times where you looked at the base socks and said, this team is a juggernaut. I mean, this is the best offensive team in this league. So it was really an up and down season. There's no doubt about it. The base socks had some COVID issues early in the year. That's really the reason why they ended up right around 500. They had about two or three weeks in May where four of their five starters uh, were out of the rotation. And it it was not a dire situation by any means, but it just thrust a lot of people into spots they weren't used to. And Bowie had a stretch where they lost 
14 of 16 games. If you really take that away, I think the team was really, really a strong team in totality, even in the early part of the season when the record didn't really show it as much. First half of the year, for instance, the Bay Sox led the entire Eastern League in on-base percentage, right? I mean, you know, usually that's not the worst. And we have the worst record in the league. You, you got on base more than any other team, and you were the worst team. I mean, it was a bizarre first half. But I think uh, the, the team added some reinforcements from an outstanding Aberdeen team. And uh, once Kowser, Norby, Prieto had already come up a little bit earlier, were with the club, and then Ortiz caught fire, the base Sox were – absolutely on fire this season. So it, we had a, a lot of great moments. You've been calling games for Orioles affiliates now for 14, 15 seasons now. Yes. Like Zach said, first with the keys, then with the base Sox, once you join the Orioles org, but you've seen a lot of great talent come through. You've seen a lot of changes in the organization, but what about just like broadly speaking, what about the talent and just the overall organizational philosophy stood out to you the most with this generation of Orioles prospects? Oh, yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, I, I think that in talking to Buck Britton, when Michael Elias came on, the feeling was that um, what they were doing in a pitching sense, they felt like they were ahead of the game, but they had to find that on the offensive end. And obviously, you guys are right at the at the tip of the spear here, so you know what I'm talking about. But, but when you're looking at players that were pre-Elias and then after Elias, you know, you look at Cedric Mullins and Mountcastle and Hayes, and, and you're, you're seeing guys that are outstanding ballplayers, but they really don't walk that much, you know? So they're either average or slightly below average on base percentage guys at the major league level. And with that, the major league team, if I had to guess, I haven't looked at it in a while. Uh, and, and with it, I, I think the major league team is probably still a little bit substandard in on base percentage. Well, that's about, to, that's going to change, you know, here in the upcoming years um, because almost every player that is coming through Bowie uh, has a very similar offensive profile or mindset. Prieto might be the only one that, that doesn't really fit the bill per se offensively, but you're just seeing guys that really work the count, even players that uh, aren't your biggest prospects. You know, we uh, got, you know, we had a guy, Chris given that they signed during, and it's like, well, here's another guy that we're, you know, that's going to have these eight pitch at bats. Right. So, Swing decisions is is the key, and I think that it, it's pretty remarkable um, kind of focusing uh, things that you're able to have a system that many feel is one of the top in baseball without really much of a Latin presence in it at all. I mean, mm-hmm. because pro- prospects are rated really about what guys are doing at the high levels of the minors. You'll never see a team that's rated the number one prospect you know team in the minors and all their prospects are in single it's like oh my god they got this great guy in the dsl that that's not how how the prospect rankings work it means that you've got dudes that are in double and triple a that are about to go to the major leagues and make things happen and the fact that the orioles have that largely without 40 percent of what major league baseball is which is latin american ballplayers is remarkable and i and i feel that one of the reasons why uh, Elias believes that this is sustainable is that if they continue to succeed and overperform in the draft, and then you see the Latin ballplayers come up as they believe is going to happen in the next, you know, three, four, five years, 
I, I think they think that they can keep a very high level minor league system, even without having the number one pick every year, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And just speaking to those walks, I mean, right now, the top two in walk percentage on the team are Adley Rutschman and Taron Vavra. Sure. And we know Gunnar Henderson and Kyle Stowers have some uh, pretty good walk rates that'll probably show up in the near future as well. But like many players, he's coached this season in Bowie. Kyle Moore has steadily moved up the ranks in this organization. Sure. Could you give us a, could you give us a sense of what kind of manager he is? He's, he's very calm, cool, and collected. I mean, you know, I've seen Kyle Moore from the beginning. He was a uh, backup catcher when I met him, <laughs> right? And then uh, in 2015, I believe it was 15, uh, he was our assistant coach. You know, basically, Gary Kendall didn't coach third base a ton, so Kyle Moore was like the third base coach, threw a lot of BP, uh, you know, and really helped with the catchers because Kyle was – a very good collegiate catcher. He was a starting catcher uh, at Alabama um, and, and obviously didn't play a ton at the higher levels of pro baseball, but this was a pass. So it's been, it's been really um, cool for me to see both Buck Britton and Kyle Moore's careers progress because I was with them as uh, ball players in the minor leagues and then seeing them grow into managers at the top of the Orioles system. It's really been rewarding for me to see. So Kyle's just a guy, you know, he's uh, – I kind of got a kick out of him getting tossed a few times this year because I'm telling you, he is a, a very laid-back kind of guy. I would say he, him uh, and it seems like all those Bowie coaches – we've had Tim DeJano before and love getting to know Tim, but watching those Bowie games, it just seems like those guys will fight for their players uh, yes. regardless. And that, that, was, that was definitely fun to see. It really was, you know, and that doesn't always happen in the minor leagues. I mean, for me, in the last few years, the great moment was when we lost the title in 21. And, I mean, the players were devastated. So there there really is, uh, you know, a great vibe. I'm not around the players really at all like I used to be. But um, but altogether, when you look at the Orioles organization, it, it is a quantity of prospects. And uh, it, there's a, a true – um, organizational philosophy that runs throughout. And I think that's really exciting. Um, you know, uh, we've had really good prospects and good players in the system. It kind of annoyed me a little bit when the Elias regime started. And it was almost like this feeling like the Orioles system was always trash. And now it's amazing. And I'm like, you know, I, I, we had, I had in Frederick in a three year span, you know, Zach Britton and Matt Wieters and Jay Garrietta, Manny Machado, Jonathan Scope. I mean, those are pretty good major leaguers in the span of three or four years to go through a sing one single A team. Uh, and obviously, I think we had really good football players kind of in that late Duquette era that so many were traded away. And if some more long-term thinking had happened, I think that it might not have ever gotten to where it did. But, but nevertheless... I think you got to be excited with um, with what the Orioles are doing. And more of a long-term approach to that thinking is this, that the way the Orioles were operating before, they just weren't winning in any aspect of their operation. They couldn't outspend their opponents. Uh, in that era, it wasn't about analytics. It was more about old-school scouting. The Orioles had less scouts than any team in the American League East. Right, uh, the uh, you know they weren't spending any money on international uh, prospects, so it's like, how are we going to win? 
You, you know, like, like these are the ways that you acquire players. You are substandard in every way. So how are you going to win? It really is amazing that Buck Walter, Dan Duquette, that whole era came together and brought together with great trades, you know, some great high draft picks. I mean, look at who the Pittsburgh Pirates took in the years that we took Weeders and Machado. And I mean, you know, they could have had those players. So uh, this is different. This feels like a model that can be sustainable. And that's what's so exciting. It will frustrate Oriole fans a little bit because this is not a model. Well, we'll have to see. But my guess is that a lot of the players Oriole fans are falling in love with, as they start making money, they're going to move out. And the guys that are minor league players now are going to move in instead of what you usually see, which is you get a good major league team and then you trade your minor league players, right? You trade Zach Davies, you trade Eduardo Rodriguez, you trade Christian Walker. It, it, you know, these guys that are good have become good major league players and you tried to win. And I, my guess would be that that's not what is going to happen. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. See, those are good points. You think about those years and the quality of players that did come through. <laughs> Focusing on one we saw this year, though, Gunnar Henderson yeah. obviously yeah. took off in a big yeah. way. You got to see him a little bit at the end of 2021. Sure. But at what point this year did you know that he was about to accomplish something special? Oh, I, you know, that's a great question, Zach, because I don't even know if I really ever thought he might be doing what he's doing now. I mean, to be honest, I, I, I was really, really impressed. I've had, I've gotten to talk to Gunnar a little bit, but like, you know, a, a few things stood out to me. His athleticism was just off the charts. Like I, I tweeted about a little bit, but I, I couldn't believe how fast he was. And he stole a lot of bases for Bowie, but it wasn't even just that. It was just like the eye test. When you watch a player play, you kind of expect certain things from them. And I just didn't expect Gunner to run like he runs. And he's got a great feel at the plate, uh, very Rutschman-esque as far as strike zone discipline. But a big thing in today's game, I think, and I think this is the underreported thing for Henderson that's taken his game to the next level, is, and I, I don't have any data to back this up, so this is the IS. But but basically the way that pitchers are getting guys out more, you know, than when we were watching baseball 15, 20 years ago, it was all about keep the ball down, work, you know, inside, outside, mostly outside, down and away, down and away. Sink the ball, right? Get a lot of ground ball. Now it's all about let's throw the four seamer up. The Orioles obviously do this more than anybody, or as much as anybody. You know, pitch try to be what Verlander is. So what 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 Gunner did in this offseason is really work to hit the high pitch. And it's just been so impressive that he is able to hit that 95-mile-an-hour fastball at the top of the zone, even if it's just to fight it off to live to see another pitch. And that's the strikeout pitch in baseball, and he's staying alive. It's what he worked on incessantly in the offseason is hitting the high fastball, and I think it's paid major dividends. Yeah, I think we were talking about that the other week that you know, we remember opening day what, last year when he was in Delmarva and thinking like Gunnar Henderson is a good prospect, but I don't think sure. any of us thought that he would be in the major leagues doing what he's doing right now uh, at this very moment. But um, one of his best friends in this system, Jordan Westberg, sure. looking at his play and what you've been able to watch out of him and just historically speaking, you see a prospect of Westberg's caliber go through these prolonged slumps 
throughout the, the last two years, but you always see him bounce back strong and, and excel. And he's done this in now in AAA Norfolk. Uh, does this give you any indication as to how he's going to adapt at the major league level? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, my guess is that he'll be the same, meaning he, he's a streaky ball player. So that's got goods and bads. But boy, when he's hot, he's got a bat that can carry a team. And the biggest thing, too, is just the ability to play certain positions and have that kind of offensive profile. So the Orioles have, you know, some guys that can play second base in the major leagues like Westberg and Norby that, I mean, literally you can argue that the two guys that hit more home runs in the Orioles minors this year are second basemen. That's kind of wild, right? I mean, they're both right-handed hitters, so that's not great for Camden Yards. But, but I mean, you know, it's exciting because the Orioles want to be a team – that hits for a lot of power. They walk a lot. You get on base, do damage. It's it's in a way uh, an Earl Weaver type of offensive game, and uh, obviously their pitching, uh, you know, their their pitching can stand up, you know, be strike a bunch of guys out. So so I think that Westberg fits the profile of of what the Orioles want to see from from their major league ball players down the road. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like another guy who just puts up solid numbers. If you look at any point in over his last two years, Hudson Haskin in his first two seasons, he's just solid all around. Uh, this time he's doing it at the double-A level all year. He seems to be a little bit overlooked maybe because he is a little consistent, nothing too flashy. What do you see when you watch him play and how high do you think his ceiling might be? Who is? I'm sorry, Bob, tell me the name again. Hudson Haskin. Oh, Hudson Haskin. Yeah, Hudson Haskin. You know, it's funny because my um, my first ever full season team, I had Hunter Pence on my team. And Hudson Haskin is the first ever player I've ever seen compared to Hunter Pence. He's not as awkward, probably doesn't have as much natural power. But but he is a long, lean, kind of a awkward gate type of ball player. Um, I, I think he had the quietest, solid year of any Bay Sock. I mean, which is funny because his first weekend was absolutely incredible. Right, I mean, he hit three homers on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I was he, at that game. It might have been opening day. He had three doubles. I mean, he had he was like seven for twelve with six extra base hits. But um, but I, I think that everybody was like, call him up to the Orioles, you know. But but uh, Haskin, I think is is going to be an interesting ball player. To me, he doesn't have a tool that really stands out. You know, um, nothing. He's not really a flashy ball player but you can say that and then you look at what he did his uh, his on base percentage was outstanding this year his slugging percentage was well above average i mean he was you know an excellent uh, offensive ball player at the double a level and he's the right age to be at double a that's something when you're looking at minor league players the age of the player is extremely important everybody just looks at numbers but but um you know you might say oh my goodness like Gunnar Henderson, you know, made it up to double A and struggled the last two weeks. So, yeah, maybe he maybe he isn't what we think. Well, guess what? He was 20 years old. Right. So the average double A player is 24. So, you know, when when you look at players like Mayo. Right. I mean, you look at Mountcastle when he came up to Bowie in 2017. It was the same kind of thing. It takes time. Manny Machado hit 245 in two thirds of a season in double A. But guess what? He was 18 for the majority of his time at double A. How crazy is that? So so. It, it's not always just a, about the, the true numbers. Haskin, once again, because of his age, I, I think he had a very solid season. 
I'm going to clip that it takes time. Just that whole thing you just said, I'm going to clip that and just keep pushing that out every time somebody mentions, why is this guy struggling after he's been in AAA for two weeks? Talking to the Colton Cowser of people out there, but... No doubt about it. And and you have to believe in people, right? The the mentality, the maturity, this is where the scouting really stands in, right? I mean, when I met uh when I met Trey Mancini, he was not a prospect. I mean, it wasn't like he was not a he was he had not hit a home run at home at Del Marva the year before. <clears throat> he was an eighth round pick that had a good month in Frederick, and he was up in Bowie, and you just knew by the way he approached the game, his humility, uh, his um, excitement to grow as a ball player, his work ethic, frankly, and you saw him play and you're like, oh, this guy gets it. Rutschman is an enormous example of that. Adley struggled when he came to Bowie. He was really struggling with velocity. It looked to me like Adley was a dominant hitter on guys that threw 90 miles an hour. And if you threw 95 belts high, he really was having a tough time with it. His swing was too big. And I know, you know, look at what he's doing now. I mean, he is, many people think, one of the best uh, catchers in the game. That's what he did in college. He struggled in his freshman year. And then by his sophomore year, he was the best uh, baseball player in in the country. So, so work ethic and the ability to, um, yeah, hit a wall and then overcome that wall is huge. And and I think the player we already talked about him that, that showed that more than anyone this year is Gunnar Henderson. I have a guy now that I think kind of fits that mold a little bit too, and that's Joey Ortiz. Yes. Um, you have long said that he's a future major leaguer with his glove and defensive abilities. He's now sporting 829 OPS with 19 homers, 59 yeah. extra base hits, and 134 games between Norfolk and Bowie. Um, and that's even when you factor in the three bad months he had at the start of the season. Exactly. What's your assessment of Ortiz after watching his growth this season? Well, this is my big take. We'll see if I'm right. You know, I, I was the, the Mancini guy in 2015 telling the whole world that even though we just signed Chris Davis, Trey Mancini was going to be the future first baseman of the Orioles. I, I just think Ortiz is different. Um, and what I mean by that is when you look at prospects, even like a prospect like a Norby or whatever, um, you know, their bat is so important. Kobe Mayo is a good example. His bat is everything to what he is as a prospect. He's not going to be a great defensive ball player, right? I mean, I'm not saying he's going to be a disaster, but his glove is not what's going to carry him. There are positions on the baseball field where your glove can make you a very good major league baseball player. It, it For me, my first team I broadcast, that team with Hunter Pence, had a shortstop named Edwin Maisonet on it. He was a Puerto Rican uh, shortstop, young, coming up, and he was hitting 210 in single A, and it was his second year in single A. And he he was having, you know, he was literally gone mentally. And one day by the cage, our hitting coach took him to the side and said, Edwin, you are the best defensive shortstop in this league. He's like, if you played first base, that wouldn't matter. But you play shortstop. He's like, you don't have to hit 315 with 25 homers to be a major league baseball player. You just got to go to double A and hit 260, right? That's what he said. You go to double A and you hit 260, you'll be in the major leagues. And that's exactly what happened. My Sinet as a 24, 25 year old, you know, hit 260, 270. That's when the Astros really kind of fell off after those world series years. And my Sinet was a three, four, five year major league ball player. 
I think Ortiz is a better ball player than that. But I think that when you have a guy that plays a premier position and he plays it defensively at such an elevated level, I think that it, it, it raises the profile. What you're seeing is Gunnar Henderson is a superstar ball player and he can play short. So the feeling is he should be the future shortstop. But I think that Ortiz is a better shortstop. I think he's going to be one of the top five, top 10 defensive shortstops in the major leagues in like three, two, three years. And I think he's going to hit enough to be a major league regular. So he doesn't need to be batting fifth, right? You know, he's, he's what Mateo is now, right? Bat this guy seventh or eighth and let him just be a, you know, an all a gold glove level shortstop. And if you put a guy like Gunner with his range at third and you put Ortiz at short, watch out. We saw what happened with Hardy and Machado in 12. You couldn't hit a ground ball through the left side of the infield. I, I just, I mean, Ortiz was not hitting at all and watching him every night. I'm like, this guy is spectacular defensively, spectacular. I mean, I haven't seen anybody play defensively since Machado like him. So uh, it's really, really exciting. Um, I am probably leading the Joey Ortiz bandwagon. I feel that his numbers at the beginning of the year um, make sense. I mean, the dude got drafted in 19. He didn't play in 20, obviously. He played a month in 21, and then he injured his labrum, which is a devastating injury. He comes back a year later. I mean, the guy got drafted in 2019. I mean, usually how many games would he have played? Like 400? He hadn't even played 100 games. You know, and so so you're expecting this guy to be a dominant player at the upper levels. It's just tough. He's also a shortstop, and he was on a team with Westberg and Henderson, so he was playing short like twice, once or twice a week. I mean, it was kind of a bizarre situation. I've seen it in other places. Salvador Perez was in single A, the backup catcher for the Wilmington Blue Rocks, in like 2007 or whatever, 2008, because they had this guy, Will Myers. So they were, you know, great hitter. They were trying to make Will Myers a catcher. And there's Salvador Perez catching in single A two or three days a week. I just, I, I don't know. I think Ortiz is going to be an outstanding longtime major league ball player. And a lot of people just want to trade Ortiz because he's not at the top of these rankings by people that don't watch the majority of these games. And, um, uh, I think that uh, Ortiz is the guy I'd like to see the Orioles keep. I love that. I, agree. I agree with that. We're just going to keep doing like another hour on Joey Ortiz. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, talking about some pitchers here that you've been able to watch for the last year plus, uh, and one who has been kind of an anomaly to us. Everybody asks us, who is Garrett Stallings? Or what is he about? <laughs> and he comes up to Bowie last year. And first year in pro ball, because you know, oh gets God. drafted in 2019, doesn't pitch with the Angels, doesn't pitch in 2020, but ends his first pro year in double A. All the numbers look good, except for the astronomical home run fly ball rate. Uh, but then this year, the June was probably the worst month I've ever seen from any pitcher ever. And Amazing. then July was one of the best months ever. Um, <laughs> what stands out to you when you watch him pitch? Yeah, I didn't talk about it on a broadcast, but when I was a kid, and you, this doesn't happen usually with starters. But there was an Oriole game. You guys might be a little bit young to remember this, but there was an Orioles game where Jesse Orozco had to wear it as a reliever. He was a good reliever for the Orioles this year. I'm guessing it was 95, 96. 
he gave up like nine or 10 runs in a third of an inning in Texas. The Orioles lost like 20 something to four and Orozco all year when he'd come into games, they'd put his ERA and then they'd put his ERA, a second ERA for if he didn't pitch that game, <laughs> they'd be like, he's got a 5.3 ERA, but if he didn't pitch in that game, he'd have a 2.4 ERA. Right. So that was Stallings. I mean, he had, he gave up 38 runs in June in like, 10 innings. I mean, it was just, it was horrendous. So, um, you know, he had the weirdest year ever, but you got to give it to him for sticking with it and getting through it. And, and that's really what it matters. It's not just about your numbers, his numbers, you know, obviously in the end of the year, didn't look good just because he had this nightmarish month. He stayed healthy, which is big. He's not a big stuff guy. You know, that that's going to hurt. It's hard in today's day and age to break into the major leagues. If you're, you know, if you're, if your fastballs 90, 91, 92, but we have seen pitchers do that in the system. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what Stallings is able to do. I do think he's the kind of guy where moving that left field wall back would help him incredibly. I mean, he's, he gives up a lot of, a lot of home runs, Um, but he was the innings eater and a huge part of, of the Bay Sox team this year. You guys have uh, seen a lot of left-handed pitchers have success up through Bowie the last few years. Keegan Aiken, Zach Lothar, Alexander Wells. Another one that passed through uh, Drew Rahm this year. You know, he's continued his steady rise ever since being drafted in 2018. Uh, From what you've seen, what do you think his ceiling is? And how do you think he compares to some of those other lefties that have come through? I think Rahm's got a little bit more on his fastball, which is good, right? I mean, when he's at his apex, he's kind of 93, 94, um, which is which is solid. Um, but he actually can move the ball a little bit. Uh, I like his demeanor on the mound. He's He's got the, uh, an aggressive mindset. He's a really good guy. Um, but I, I think that it's interesting because I do think he kind of profiles – um, a little bit more, I don't want to say towards the, the, the last, because the Orioles didn't really have, in my, they, they drafted a lot of different types of pitchers in the last regime, like a Brennan Hanafi that's really a sinker guy, right, compared to other guys, like obviously a Grayson Rodriguez that is not. So, uh, you know, when you look at Rom, I do feel like he almost is more of a sinker slider guy, which is not really what uh, the Orioles – um, brass. If you look at the kind of guys they draft now, they don't draft pitchers like that. So it's going to be interesting to see if how much they value him, you know, in that regard. So pivoting back to hitters now, um, Connor Norby really took off after he got to Bowie this year, yeah. and you know now organization minor league leader in home runs. Why do you think he was able to be so successful so quickly with the base? Wow. It's a great question, Zach. I, I don't know. I mean, but it, it was really, really impressive. I, I, you know, love watching him play. And, uh, you know, he's he's a guy that's that's really, really aggressive. He's an aggressive hitter. So you see a lot of these new Oriole hitters that they're going to take a ton of pitches early in the count, really work the count. But Norby's up there to do damage. He's not messing around. And he hits a lot of homers to right center. I think that's a really good sign. Um, but he hits a lot of home runs first pitch swinging. So uh, really, really exciting ball player. Um, I know he hit for good average, but his slugging percentage was outstanding. And I do think he profiles as a second baseman. You think his defense is is good there? 
You know what? It's kind of weird because it, it, it didn't really stand out to me, which is good. I mean, it's probably a good thing, right? <laughs> for defender, but but I think he's going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, what about his fellow 2020 draft pick, a partner there, Colton Kowser? I know he didn't spend too much time in Bowie because yeah. he's quickly found his way up to AAA now. But um, what? How? Just how good was his bat that you were able to see? I love Kowser. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love guys that have that Nick Marquez type of quick whip swing and hit the ball to all fields. Uh, and cows are just, he's just a guy that just is on base constantly. I mean, people can worry about the power. He's, he's had almost 20 homers this year. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just think he's a spectacular uh, prospect. Um, he can run, he can play some center field. I think he's a guy you can play anywhere in the outfield and, and altogether. I just think Kowser is, uh, extreme. I mean, get extremely excited because he's just going to be on base all all the time, and that's what it's all about. If he can be a three, you know, high three hundred on base percentage guy in the major leagues, I mean, it's extremely exciting. Absolutely, and you know, we talked about him a little bit a little while ago, but could you see Kobe Mayo being next year's Gunnar Henderson? Insofar as you know, he's a young kid. He's got a taste of Bowie this year. Unfortunately injured his back a little bit once he got promoted, but could you see with the full off season and taking his experience from this year coming in, you know, these young guys can develop pretty quickly. Uh, could you see him coming in and just dominating double a to begin next season? He's a physical specimen. I mean, he's just a big dude. Like, like you, you don't see baseball players that often and you see them and you're like, Whoa. I mean, that's what I, when I saw Aaron judge in Trenton in 2015, I was like, who's that guy. <laughs> right, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so there's a little bit of that to Mayo. I, I don't think he's going to be a big league third baseman. I think that uh, Mayo kind of fits a Mountcastle profile, even though he's not the same player because Mountcastle, it was all about his his arm strength. Uh, but I think Mayo, you know, usually if you say that a guy is a first baseman, um, that's usually super negative because not many guys have the bat that can be a first baseman in the major leagues. Um, but we have seen that in the system with Walker and with Mancini over, and Mountcastle. And I think – Mayo is the next in that line. So it's, I, I think the dude, I think that Kobe Mayo is an incredibly exciting prospect. And I do think, like you said, Bob, that I think he's going to have a big, big year in double A next year. Yeah. I could see that arm though, playing up even in right field, maybe like, yeah, no doubt. He's got a cannon. Yeah. Everything about his game is power. Everything, <laughs> you know, it feels like. Looking at uh, pitchers, Noah DeNoyer was excellent for the Bay Sox this season. Now he's heading the Arizona Fall League with a strong case for being added to the 40-man roster wow. um, over the offseason. Do you think that his breakout is for real? Yes, I do. I really like DeNoyer. I really like Arm Brewster and uh, Watson. I mean, these are guys that throw – in the mid nineties, I think they profile very similarly to like the Baker Crable, you know, type of pitcher. And, you know, everybody wants everyone to be, you know, the number one starter. Uh, and, and my guess is that you've got some guys here that, that could be pieces uh, that have viability in the Orioles bullpen in the future. And, and that, you know, that's really big. So I think that, uh, that all in all it's, it's an exciting thing. Uh, the other thing about this is we're talking largely about players that were top draft choices, right? So you, you spent a lot of capital on these hitters, Kowser, Norby, Haskin. I mean, these guys were all top two, you know, in the first two rounds. 
So when you get a guy like Denoyer who was undrafted, right? I mean, th- these are the ways you're seeing in the rotation this year, right? I mean, Wells, I mean, what was he drafted? He was he was a third day draft pick. Dean Kramer was a 14th rounder. You're seeing a lot of guys, you know, that were late round draft picks that that even though they might even be from other organizations that are really paying off for the Orioles. And um, I think that uh, Denoyer, here's another little story. Like we had an all-star break and these guys get no break and Denoyer didn't want to go home. Like he just, he's like, I'm staying in town and working out and getting ready for the, for the season, you know? So um, yeah, I mean, altogether, I think that um, I, I think he's got a chance. He really does. Nice. You mentioned Ryan Watson and he was yeah. pretty much a career reliever. I don't think either of us tagged that. him. Yeah, neither, neither <laughs> of us tagged him as a starter this year, and yet he was probably Bowie's one of, one of Bowie's most dominant starters all season. Now he's in Norfolk's bullpen to finish the year. I imagine that yep. may be an innings limit type of thing, but um, you know, do you have any indication of like why that was, why the Orioles decided to go, hey, you're a, a starter for the Bay Sox instead of just continuing to work him out of the bullpen? Well, you know, uh, the more innings, the better, obviously. I, I think that it really came when – the, we lost four of our five starters, right, due to uh, illness, and then in May, and then Watson was one, the one that got plugged in that that really did great, and he was incredible in April. I mean, he mm-hmm. was dominant out of the bullpen, and Bowie was really struggling from the mound, and Watson was the bright spot. So you know, think about it this way, Nick. Like Jim Johnson, a great you know Oriole closer, he was a starter in Bowie. Chris Ray was a starter in Bowie. Zach Britton was a starter in Bowie. Dylan Tate was a starter in Bowie. You know, Hunter Harvey was a starter in Bowie. You know, so they even tried to make Tanner Scott a, a starter kind of in Bowie, which is kind of funny. Uh, that was that was a kind of a square peg in a round hole. But 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 when you're able to let guys that who knows maybe Watson is going to be the next Tyler Wells or the next Austin Voth. But I mean, I, I think that Watson to me, would profile really well. I mean, he's probably going to – if he comes out of the pen for an inning or two, he's probably throwing 96, 97 miles an hour, you know? And and I, that, that's that's exciting. So so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he is in, in that Dylan Tate type of mold. Yeah, and going back to hitting again, the guy that – the only guy in the system basically that doesn't walk, Cesar Prieto, he hit yes. seven home runs with Aberdeen in April before a quick promotion up to Bowie. Uh, but then he struggled a bit as far as the power and the on-base percentage goes. He still showed off the hit tool, I feel like, with some no doubles doubt. in for average. But do you see any signs that he could improve in those areas to be more of a complete player down the line? No doubt. Well, first of all, he hits the ball, right? So he struck out at a lower strikeout rate than just about anybody. So that is a real asset in today's game, it's never talked about, right? Because it's not your on-base percentage or whatever, but, you know, he 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 really, really, uh, you know, was able to put the ball in play. So with Prieto, for me, something that's that stands out uh, to me, and I'm so sorry, my daughter is crying her eyes out in bed right now. But, uh, but I'm going to try to turn her down here. But uh, bad parenting. Sorry for everybody. Uh, we'll, we'll take care of her in just a minute. But uh, Cesar Prieto, is a, he's a ball player that is, is Cuban. And I know it's like, well, what does that mean? But it, it's so different. Like the Dominican and Venezuelan players are signed where they're 16 years old. 
They're given the nutrition. They're taught the culture. They're taught the language. They, in essence, go to an American school, right? And then the best of them come up here a few years later. And then the best of those make it up to double A. I mean, by the time you're at double A, if you're 21, 22 years old, you have been around American professional baseball, you know, in one way, shape or form for five years. These these Cuban ballplayers that just leave their families, they feel so much pressure. Baseball is their absolute life. They sign a contract. They have money. You know, they don't know anything like they, they don't know a word of English. And it's like, here we go. Go for it. I mean, to me, for Prieto to do what he did to start the year in Aberdeen, I thought for sure he was going to start really slow. I couldn't believe that he was doing so well. I know he's 23 years old and, you know, high A, you know, is 22, 23 is the average age. But, boy, that was really encouraging. And obviously he's going to need to, to maybe take a step forward in double A. But, um, but boy, I, I think that um, – I, I think that for a first year in the States, it was a really successful season for him. Last year, Zach Watson broke out into the 2020 season between Aberdeen and Bowie, but things didn't go well for him at the plate uh, at all this year, though he did pick up a little bit at the end. Sure. Why do you think it was that his numbers took a step back after such breakout last year? Oh, it's a good question. Yeah, it was a tough year for Zach uh, Watson. You know, he's really slight. Um, and I, I, I don't know. Sometimes when you look at Zach Watson, you think this guy's going to be a put the ball in play and beat you with his legs guy. And like, literally he, he came up and he was like this big power hitter you know, for us in 2021. I'm like, that guy is hitting homers. I mean, you know, it, it was, it, it was kind of wild. I, I don't, I don't want to say it caught up with him, but look, it, if you're standing still, you're going to get past. It's it's such a tough environment, minor league baseball. You you just you got to keep going, and and a bad month can put you behind. And he just had a really really tough start to the year. Couldn't get it going. He went. He kind of they they took him off the active roster for a few weeks, and then they put him back on at the end. And he really did play well. That's a good sign. He's. I believe a third round draft choice. So he's, it's not over for him. Right. So next year's a huge year, but it, it was obviously a step back season for him. And uh, he'll probably start next season in Bowie. And if he is a good April, he'll be in triple a, like, you know, very quickly. So, and I, I do think there's less depth in outfielders in the system than infielders. So that's advantageous. <laughs> to end on a, a high note with some uh, high profile arms here, uh, Justin yeah. Armbruster, you touched on his name earlier, but he could legitimately be this year's Orioles, the Jim Palmer minor league pitcher of the year. Yeah, How about that? This organization. Yeah. Uh, a guy who nobody was talking about last year. I know uh, you're talking about guys who don't watch uh, these minor leaguers, but want to make lists um, sure. in detail. You call him just an org guy. And that may be the case with Justin Armbruster. We don't know how his development is going to end up, but, he could end up being the pitcher of the year. What did you see from him this year that really stood out? I just think his profile looks like what um, the Orioles want in pitchers, if that makes sense. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? I mean, yeah. the dude throws 95 miles an hour. I mean, I know that players are moving faster, so, like, I've got to get my mind right, if that makes sense. Like, I am, I've been around, as we talked about before, a long time, so I have it in my head like, okay, these guys get drafted. And then they're supposed to be good double-A players two years later. So when a guy gets drafted in the 12th round, 
and like it's June of the next year and he's a good double a pitcher. I'm like, Whoa, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that, that's, that stands out big time to me. Now there's more, a lot more of that now than there was pre pandemic. Um, players are getting pushed more. You might argue that the level of double a baseball is slightly less and players now are like triple a is being actually treated like a level instead of just being four a, you know, I remember when Buck Britton got called to AAA in 2014, he came back down a week later and he said, Adam, I was one of three players that didn't have big league time out of 25 <laughs> on, on the Norfolk Tides. So the AA was the prospect level. And if you crushed it in AA, well, you just stayed in AA. You know, so Mancini was the best player in AA at 359 with 20 bombs in four months. And the next year they said, hey, Trey, guess what? You're going to Bowie. I mean, you know, if he was in this regime, he wouldn't have been in Bowie more than six weeks, you know? So, so it is a little bit different, but even with all that said, I still think it's incredibly impressive. And I think that Arm Brewster, he just does a really good job. I mean, he's got different pitches. Obviously he's got a repertoire, but he throws 95 and he throws the fastball really well at the top of the zone. And I think that that, um, yeah, that, that's, that's a big thing in today's game, right? To be able to, work a breaking ball down and then climb the ladder with that kind of velocity and to be able to throw at that velo is big. And even if he's not a starter, which I think he could be, but, uh, and I think Watson could be too. I, I still think like they look a lot to me like, you know, a Dylan Tate, Keegan Aiken, you know, ability. So I, I think you've got uh, a lot of opportunity to be uh, a, a, an Oriole that matters to a future team. Yeah, a couple more pitchers, Cade Povich and Chase McDermott. Yeah, each, yeah. Each got a taste of double A after be a, being acquired at the trade deadline. Their stuff looks great despite having some shaky results. But sure. what do you what do you make of them and how do you see them uh performing next year? So Povich was like grew up loving Kershaw and then like he throws his first curveball, and I'm telling that story, and the dude throws like a 67 mile an hour curveball. I'm like, hey, there it is, I get you. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it wasn't just, you know, he wasn't just blowing smoke. I mean, he's literally, you know, trying to trying to pitch like Kershaw. You know, um, so I really enjoy Povich. I think that he's got a uh, good pitching style. Of course, he had a few tough ones in the end. I wouldn't really take their numbers in Double A um, with much. Uh, I, if you throw three or four games, it, it doesn't really, you know, it's like, oh my God, the guy's hitting 150. Well, he played six, eight games, you know? Yeah. So it doesn't really matter. Um, so Povich did have a, a few tough games to finish his season, but I do like his stuff. He, he's got a little bit more pitchability uh, than uh, uh, McDermott, but McDermott's got st some stuff. So I, I, I would think that Povich has got a better chance to stick as a starter prospect and if Povich hits his apex uh and I, I do think it's a little bit of a push to say he'd get to that level but but you'd be hoping for a Dean Kramer type starter he kind of has Kramer type stuff I think Kramer though man the dude the, the, Dean always kind of had a little bit he was so fiery and I love that about pitchers right so so I, I don't know. Dean just has a mindset that I that I, I always thought Dean was going to be able to be what he is this year. So, I think we're at this rate, you kind of expect that Povich and McDermott will be back in Bowie to start Certainly. next year. What would yeah. you say that they would need to work on um, just as they get more time at Double A under their belts? 
Oof. I mean, uh, you, you could say quite a few things, to be honest. I mean, uh, the easiest thing would be consistency, right? I mean, um, you're just not going to get as many guys to chase. Many, a, a lot of organizations are doing what the Orioles are doing. So it's just harder to put away hitters. And you've got you've got to make and execute your pitches. So I, I think um, that beyond just a development of, um, you know, of another pitch, it's not like, uh, they need to recreate themselves as pitchers. Like, let me throw out a, a pitcher that almost reached the major leagues. The Orioles drafted a guy around the 20th round back in the day named Lucas Long. And and it's like, my God, he was dominating double A one year. And I go to talk to him and I realize he wasn't throwing any pitch that he threw when he got drafted. I mean, he was a four seamer with a big curveball when he got drafted. And now he was literally just two seamer, a great two seamer. He f- figured out a change up and a slider. I'm like, you're literally the opposite pitcher. So, so I, I don't think you're looking at that kind of background, Zach, where I, I think they're going to look to finesse and, uh, and work on what they're throwing. So, with uh, with Povich, you're looking at a guy once again that throws a big curveball, uh, and um, and then with McDermott, you're looking more at a guy uh, that I think is more of a hard slider guy. So we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and your insight has been excellent. Has there been anyone that we haven't talked about tonight from the Bay Sox this year you feel like maybe he's been a little overlooked, and that our listeners should pay closer attention to next season? <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, I think that, um, I think the backup catcher spot in Baltimore is going to be interesting. Um, you know, I think that there's a big hole there uh, for the Orioles and I'm really intrigued to see who's going to be that guy, you know, um, Rutschman's going to catch most games. It would make sense to me if the Orioles would get a veteran, you know, um, to play a few nights and almost be like an Odor type of leader, as they've talked about this year. Uh, that would be my guess. Um, but I do like Maverick Hanley and uh, and Cody Roberts uh, as catchers. Roberts can really throw. Hanley can throw as well. Hanley is extremely bright. And when you're thinking about guys like, you know, Roberts went to UNC, Hanley went to Stanford. I don't know. That matters to me in a way. It's kind of weird to say because good players are going to get recruited anywhere. But like, I just think that you're looking at a guy that can call the game, catch the game. I don't know. I think they both have a chance. So those are guys that are never talked about uh, that. I think, you know, have a possibility to be a backup catcher at the big league level. We have seen a lot of backup catchers and another uh, former Orioles minor leaguer, one of my favorites of all time. In fact, trivia question, the last uh, the last player, I believe, to pour a beer on my head in a celebration, uh, the great Austin Wins, uh, who again, you know, in the big leagues this year, right, with the Giants as, as one of their catchers. So I'm interested to see if, if, uh, if one of these guys we've got, it might even be a guy that's not in Bowie yet, you know, too, but – but um, but I think there's there's opportunity there. I, love, I, know, I was going to say Cody Roberts. That's a guy that I don't think uh, Maverick Hanley. We all know like the defense is sure. really good. The bat picked up a little bit, but Roberts, yeah, is definitely a guy who I know we don't even talk about. But he's had some pretty clutch hits in, in the yeah. last two seasons. I mean, can you just get, tell us a little bit more <laughs> about his overall play, like how he is as a hitter? 
and that defense. You you really well, think he, I love that he hits the ball. He hits the ball to all fields, and that's mm-hmm. like you know a big thing for me. Mm-hmm. I, I just love seeing guys that that really hit it everywhere. Uh, and um, obviously that's become more important in the major league game recently, but it might become less important next year, right? If the shift yeah. is is out outlawed, but um, but Roberts has the clutch gene. <laughs> Excuse me. I mean, he had the biggest hit. He's got one of the biggest hits in Bay Sox history. When Bowie on the last day of the 21 season was down in the eighth inning, there's two men out, two men on, you know, and, and I think we'd already tied it. We were down by one going in, so it was a tie game, and Roberts gets the game-winning hit, and it was an opposite field single. Um, so I think he's – I just – I don't know. I, I just think he's a really smart ball player, and he's got a very strong and accurate arm. <clears throat> and a lot of you – know, I mean, he, he almost threw out three guys in two innings in a, in a game late in the season. It was like, my God, like this is crazy. Like our pitcher is going to have to send this guy a Christmas card, you know, I mean, like it, it was unbelievable. But, uh, but, but I think I, I, you know, I mean, they're under the radar, but, uh, but again, you know, you've got a lot of guys that are big parts of the Orioles this year that are under the radar, especially Spencer Watkins, both. I mean, you know, there's so many guys like that. And, who knows? Maybe we've got some guys in our system that can be that for us in a few years too. John Means. I mean, John Means. I would not have come on this podcast and told you John Means was going to be a major, even a major league pitcher. Okay, I mean, he was. You know, so so it, it's it, it, we'll we'll see. It's going to be fun to watch. The beauty of baseball. We got to ask you a trivia question. Okay. Can anybody name? A player on my first Orioles minor league oh, team. No. <laughs> hmm. So would that Frederick- would be the 2007 Frederick Keys. This is not easy. I was going to say. Okay. So that was my sophomore year of college. So same, same. <laughs> the problem is that Matt Wieters and Jake Arietta were on the 2018. So see, I'm from Hagerstown. I'm trying to remember the 2006 Shorebirds, which would then yes. be the 2007 Keys, and I'm struggling to remember the 2006 Shorebirds. Well, literally, like, we didn't have a hitter even get past double-A on the 2007 Keys. So uh, it, 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 it's almost always a pitcher. But we had a few pitchers. We, oh had, the great, we had the great David Hernandez, uh, Brad Bergeson, and uh, Jason Birkin. Those, those were probably uh, the, the, biggest, the biggest names that came from my first Oriole team. But it's been a while. Uh, I remember her name. That's, That's a good one. <laughs> I remember all of them. Jason Birkin, Clemson guy. I, I was I was a fan of his. Yeah, Bruno, he's a great guy. Birkin, one of the players I think wore number thirty-five before between Mike Messina and Adley Rutschman. Oh, good one, good one. <laughs> I don't know if uh, Bob or Zach have any more uh, baseball questions, but since I had you on before you left, I, I wanted to ask you one uh, a tennis question because I know you're a big tennis fan. <laughs> oh my I, goodness, it's like my <laughs> secret. I love the show Survivor, and I love tennis. But yeah, it's like Survivor. Yeah, yeah. The new season yeah. started. Yeah, the new season started. I'm, I'm, I'm a big I'm, fan as well. Big Survivor okay. guy here. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, I played competitively. I coached. I, I love, I love, honestly, I love tennis more than baseball. Uh, to I be never completely honest. This. But um, yeah, I, you know, we just saw the end of Serena Williams and Roger Federer. Yeah. We saw them go out. Uh, and we'll, we'll tie this into the local audience yeah. here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is the future of tennis in good hands with Prince George's own Francis Tiafo rising up in the ranks right now? Oh, I love it. I think it's going to be exciting. I think, though, there's a good chance. 
I don't know. I think the tennis world um, believes that Tiafo had this big moment and there might be even a few other Americans. So like, instead of having one guy that just dominates mm-hmm. like a Djokovic or Federer or whatever, there's not really like a, another Pete Sampras, but there are other Tiafos and that makes sense. So like the number 10 player in the world, I think so right around there is a player named Taylor Fritz and he's won a much bigger tournament than Tiafo and Fritz made it to the quarterfinals of Wimbledon. And then there's a few other American players that are at Tiafo's level. Um, there's one that's really fun to watch. His name's Tommy Paul. So he's in the twenties in the world. And Tommy Paul is the kind of tennis player I like, meaning like they're not good enough to just serve it by people. So mm-hmm. they've just got to win by literally just running around like a, like, a, you know, like a crazy yeah. person and just keeping it alive and hoping the other person just hits it into the net or whatever. And then you're like, Oh my God, how did he win that point? You know? So that is a, that's what Tommy Paul does. So I, I enjoy him, but, but we'll see it. Yeah. T- I mean, it's, it's pretty spectacular. I mean, the dude's like around 20th in the world and he's had like two months for the ages here. So we'll see, we'll yeah. see if he can really jump up to be a top 10 player. It's pretty cool. Love it. If we can do Francis Tiafo night at the Bay Sox game next season, uh, let us know. <laughs> Let's do it. I definitely. He's doing everything too. He was in London this weekend, and then they. I saw pictures of him at the Wizards practice today. The dude like doesn't sleep. <laughs> Love it. All right. So now that I know your Survivor guy, um, favorite <laughs> Survivor players as far as entertainment goes. Oh, for me, it's, to, it's Tony and Tyson for me. A Survivor uh, show, they were asking people, I'm like, who would be my favorite? Okay, I I was most heartbroken. There was a season where there was this nerdy girl named Aubrey, and she was going to win. And then you went to the final show, and then she didn't win. Michelle and Peter, you, yeah. yeah, and you just realized that like the edit you're seeing is not – real life you know and she was playing this dominant game but like nobody gave her credit for it so i always uh feel uh her that's probably my favorite survivor player ever Uh, but but yeah i I didn't watch it from the beginning (coughs) excuse me it was a it was a um person in minor league baseball is working with the keys the guy that runs the pittsburgh pirates video board right now his name's paul danilo the dude's a genius and he always calls me pool he's like pool Oh, you don't watch this show. You would love this show. And I watched it one night and I got into the season. And then the next season was the Russell Hans season. He was like the biggest villain in survivor history. And he changed how the game of survivor is played. Now I didn't really know that. Cause it was like the yeah. first time I yeah. watched it. So I'm really weird. Cause everybody that's watches survivor um, pre pandemic, it's like they've watched it from the beginning. Some people, but some people got into it when it went on Netflix and then started watching seasons past. <clears throat> I'm like the only one that picked up the show in like season 20 and has watched it since. So I haven't watched the first 20 year season. So yeah, I'm, I, I'm a weirdo. I started with season 14 and then I did go back and watch them, but yeah, it's a cool show. It anyway. is great. So, to starting Wednesdays, we're going to have our spinoff podcast, the yes. reality TV show <laughs> podcast. I love it. I love it. Oh, Adam, Verge of Tribal Council. Sorry. <laughs> we've appreciated your insight about all things baseball and non-baseball tonight. And speaking of non-baseball, your uh, broadcasting work does not stop with the baseball season. You're uh, moving on to college basketball now, right? Super excited, yeah. You know, I've been doing them out for about 10 years, Mount St. Mary's. We are in the MAC now, so it's going to be very different. Um, we've been in the NEC 
which is one of the bottom five leagues of D1 basketball. Um, and, and you're a 16 seed. Like when you win the NEC tournament, you're a 16 seed, you know, basically. You can be a 15. You can't be a 15. But um, but the Mac's very different. It's going to be an enormous leap for the Mount. Last year, there was a Mac team in the Elite Eight, St. Peter's. Uh, Siena has been a nine seed in the tournament out of the Mac. Uh, um uh, Rick Pitino is a coach in the Mac at Iona. <laughs> Freaking Rick Pitino is coming to Mount St. Mary's this year. Get ready. So um, it, it's going to be exciting to see how our team is able to level up. We have a more veteran team. We did lose two of our best defensive players and our bigs, but but all together, I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun, and and I'm taking more of a long term view at it. I, I think obviously it's an 11 team league. I'm not expecting to cut down nets this season, but I, I, I do think that we could be a middle-of-the-pack team in the league this year, and it's going to be really fun to see what we can do because this D.C.-Baltimore area is incredible for, for basketball recruiting and being elevated to the MAC uh, with the best mid-major atmosphere of, of any school in, in this area. Um, and I don't think uh, if you came to Mount Games, I think you, I mean there's almost no question of that. I know there's some other schools that have some really nice arenas like Towson and UMBC, but the Mount is pretty special. It's an old, old barn from the '80s, kind of has like a Butler feel to it, and uh, it the place absolutely rocks. You know, it's got 3,000 seats, and they average over 2,000 fans per game, and it's just it, it's it's a it's a lot of fun. So if you can. It's going to be tough to get a ticket for Iona, but if you can, I suggest trying to find a way to get up to uh, Not Arena this year. It really is a lot of fun as a sports fan. Well, Adam, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. And um, we will be back next week with our recap of the Norfolk Tide season. We'll also have have two shows next week, our regular show on Monday night and then our live show at Full Tilt on Wednesday. In the meantime, check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. For all the latest covers on the Orioles, Ravens, college sports, and more. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Birds. Uh, for the final days of the minor league season in the Norfolk Tides, as well as the, we wind down the major league season, we'll have coverage for you there. Thank you to Adam Pohl for joining us tonight. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Birds. That'll do it for this week's episode of On the Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more.